I want to start this morning by posing a question. What does faithfulness look like in a season of intense difficulty? What does faithfulness look like in a season of intense difficulty? As Pastor Dan mentioned last week when he ministered to us from the Valley of Vision in 2 Corinthians 12, it seems that many in our church family are facing an unprecedented season of difficulty. And so it would seem we might feel more than usual our need to answer a question like this. What do we need to know in order to respond faithfully when we experience hardship, when we experience pain and difficulty? Well, as you may recall from earlier sermons in Genesis, the worldwide flood recorded in Genesis chapters 7 and 8 represents the height of this world's experience of the devastating and destructive effects of sin. By Genesis 6, the sinfulness and corruption of man had spread so thoroughly that God responded by waging a war against his own creation. The floodwaters God sent rose higher and higher until every living creature, including every man, woman, and child on earth, breathed their last. In today's text, we find Noah and his family, the eight people preserved in the ark, we find them having emerged to a world that had been utterly destroyed in God's war. Following their emergence from the ark, God soon established three features of his covenant, which would have helped Noah and which will help us to understand the answer to that question. What does post-flood faithfulness look like? I want to invite you to open your Bibles and to stand with me in honor of God's word as we read. Go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 9. As we read this text, and it's a long one, it's 29 verses, so bear with me as I read, we'll find that while some things have changed following the flood, that God still calls his people to work to be a blessing with hope in his promise even as we groan. So try to pay attention to those themes as you follow along with me. Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. As with the green plant, I give all to you. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man, I'm sorry, surely, back to verse 4. <laughs> However, flesh with its life, that is its blood, you shall not eat. Surely I will require from your lifeblood. From every living thing I will require it. And from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Swarm on the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your, son, your seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, 
of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. Indeed, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, and there shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Then God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am giving to be between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I put my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it will be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was scattered abroad. Then Noah began to be a man of the land and planted a vineyard, And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Then Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took the garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan. A slave of slaves he shall be to his brothers. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be their servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So, all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of your word. You may be seated. And if you would, please bow your heads with me, and let's pray for the Lord's help. Father, we stand before you, impotent in ourselves, Father, to do what needs to happen in this hour. And so, Father, we pray that you would, as you have promised, send your spirit to accompany the ministry of your word, Father, to humble our hearts, Father, to show us our unbelieving places, Father, to show us the places where our pride reigns, Father, to confront us, and Father, to minister hope and encouragement to us through your promises. Father, we don't naturally see what you have for us to see, and so we pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as only you can. Father, it is in the precious name of your Son that we pray. Amen. So what we find, again, in these 29 verses, and you see this on your outline, three features of God's covenant that help us understand what faithfulness looks like in this age. And since you have those on your outline, I won't read them off now. I'll actually have a small emendation for each one, so we'll, 
we'll add those as we go along. But follow with me, starting in verse 1, where we will see feature number one of God's covenant, the work of the covenant. And the emendation for this one is uh, it continues. The work of the covenant continues. So just add that word there on your outline. The work of the covenant continues. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that's verse 1. Now I want you to skip for a moment, put your eyes down on verse 7. God says again, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, swarm on the earth and multiply in it. And uh, since I'm pointing it out, it's obvious to you, you see the identical wording in verses 1 and 7. Well, that's an indication that these seven verses are a section of text that, that have a single main point. And that main point is what I've just pointed out to you, that the work of the covenant continues. Now recall that this was the same language used to give Adam and Eve their mandate back in chapters 1 and 2. Like the single water source that welled up from Eden to bless the whole earth, God had placed man in Eden and told them to be fruitful and multiply. By doing so, man would spread God's blessing. He would mediate God's goodness as God's image to the entire earth. Instead of that, as we've seen in the chapters since, man sinned. And rather than spreading blessing, we spread death and curse to the whole earth. And so, this is the first preliminary answer to the question, what does post-flood faithfulness look like? It looks a whole lot like pre-flood faithfulness. The work of the covenant continues. Be fruitful and multiply and be a blessing as you fill the earth with the image of God. But it's also true that as Noah and his family exit the ark and survey the land, a lot has changed. Rather than an abundantly good creation teeming with life and hope and promise, what would Noah and his family have seen as they looked around them? Well, as we saw from chapter 8, they would have seen evidence of God's judgment against sin. The earth had been utterly destroyed by floodwaters. And so, rather than evidence of life, what they saw all around them would have been evidence of death. Imagine for a moment a place like Nagasaki or Hiroshima, the cities in Japan, after World War II, after the atomic bombs were dropped. And maybe you've seen pictures of the destruction. The devastation in a place and a situation like that is just immense. Well, the post-flood scene for Noah and his family would have been even worse than that. It wasn't just two cities, but the whole earth that had breathed its last and been destroyed. They were the only survivors. And so we can imagine Noah and his family taking stock of what they could see. And surely, as they did, they felt overwhelmed and perhaps even a bit hopeless. Well, I want to ask you to consider likewise your reality for a moment. As you take stock of the setting and circumstances of your life, what do you see? Is there difficulty? Is there struggle? Is there physical or emotional pain? Beloved, this is our reality. And we know that every adversity in this life is a present reality because of sin, because of the fall. And as you think of the effects of this world's fallenness in your suffering or in your loved one's suffering, as you think of its effects and the uncertainty of how long a failing body will last, 
or in the trial of unemployment or in the pain of relational conflict, do you see need for God's provision and hope? That's the position that Noah and his family are in as they emerge from the ark. Specifically, relative to these first seven verses, they're in a position where they need to know what to do. And they need to know, to some extent, that provision will be made for them to do it. And so, God tells them. You are simply to do, God says, what you've always been called to do. Be fruitful, multiply, and be a blessing as you fill the entire earth with the image of God. Well, that's a simple task, right? Well, in one way, yes, it's simple. Get married, and that was already taken care of for Noah's sons, and have babies, and raise your children in the fear and admonition of Yahweh, and be a blessing to the whole earth as the image of God spreads from place to place. But while it might seem simple, you have to imagine in this situation it didn't seem easy. And maybe it didn't even seem possible. Of course, the most important thing they needed if they were going to do this was to be reminded of God's promise and of the fact that he was in control and could be trusted. And that's where we're going. We'll get there in point number two. But first, here, God makes some practical provision. There are two provisions here in these verses that support the work of the covenant. So that the situation from Genesis 6, where unrestrained evil filled the whole earth, wouldn't repeat itself again. The first provision, here in the first seven verses, there's the provision of a new relationship with the animals. Previously, only green plants had been given for food. It seems that animals generally had had a friendly relationship, both with Adam, that came to him so that he could name them, and then with Noah as they came to him to board the ark. But here in chapter 9, God places enmity between man and animals. Verse 2, And the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are given. So God makes this change here. And this change has two effects. First, it made it so that man had more food options. Man could now eat meat. And yes, it is appropriate <laughs> to take a moment and savor the goodness of the fact that we get to eat beef brisket and ribs and all of those good things. So yes, that's the first effect of this change. Secondly, this, this made it so that the population of both man and of the animals would be restrained. And that's gonna, you'll see this all the way through chapter 11. Post-flood, there are just some changes, as we've already noted, in the lifespan of man. Ecological changes, we don't even know all the details, but we do know that God is making changes, and the major thrust of those changes has to do with restraining sin, and in this case, even restraining the population of man. And we see evidence of that in later scripture. We read in Exodus 23, verse 29, that God was not going to let Israel have the promised land to themselves all at once because the animal life there would have overwhelmed a small population. So this is the first practical provision that God gives here, a new relationship of enmity with the animals. And you'd be right, by the way, to think of Romans 8 at this point, that it's not just man who groans under the curse. Paul says there that all creation groans, awaiting the revealing of the sons of God because all creation is under this enmity. We eat the animals and they fear us and sometimes harm us and sometimes they even eat us. 
This is not the way it was originally supposed to be, but it is how things are after the flood. The second practical provision here is, in a word, government. Remember that up to the flood, starting with the murder of Abel, the only recourse for the righteous remnant as they were afflicted by Cain's line was to call upon Yahweh. Man was not given the responsibility to enforce justice until this section in Genesis 9. And so here, and it's important to note that this is rooted in the ongoing fact that man is God's image. Here it's stipulated that any man or any beast who takes a man's life, any murderer, will be subject to the penalty of death that will now be enforced by men. This is where we get the original theology that undergirds Romans 13, verse 1, that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. So God gives two practical provisions here. First, the change in our relationship relative to the animals, and secondly, he gives government. These provisions should begin to build hope that what Yahweh calls us to do, he will make possible. He's putting into place practical conditions and provisions that make it so that his people can fulfill the purpose he gives them and actually be the blessing he calls them to be. And friends, I hope this is beginning to give you hope. Something we need to see here is the continuity of the work of the covenant. We know, of course, that Moses was writing Genesis for Israel, right? And what was Israel called to do? Israel was a nation of priests. Their calling was to follow the laws and the statutes of Yahweh, and as they did so, he promised they would draw all nations to him, to their faithful, life-giving, covenant-keeping God. And just as God makes provision for Noah here, we read time and again, don't we, of how God made every provision for his people Israel. Things like manna, water from a rock, the falling of the walls of Jericho, foreign armies put to flight. God made every provision for Israel so that they too could do the work of the covenant. But of course, that didn't stop with Israel. Who are God's covenant people today? The church. We are. And what is the covenant work God calls us to do? Well, it's more or less the same. The whole book of Ephesians is really about how this gets worked out. And by the way, that's in the small group notes, and I didn't go into as much depth as I had hoped. So small group leaders, you might just want to read the book of Ephesians and think about how this is the case. <laughs> the, the whole book of Ephesians is about how this works out, that the calling to be a blessing to the earth is made possible for an entire people, the church, for the first time in this church age. That's the thrust of the whole book. We, both corporately and individually, like Adam and like Noah and then Israel, are called to be a blessing to the earth. We, the church, are God's priesthood, as I read earlier before the prayer in 1 Peter 2. We are called to be God's priesthood, his kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And what are we to do to that end? We are to spread God's blessing by loving and doing good, by bringing life, the aroma of life to life, to every corner of this globe. It's the same calling. And has God made provision for us to do this covenant work? Listen from Ephesians 4, verse 11, describing some of the practical 
enabling gifts God gives to his church. Verse 11. And he himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Friends, if we're tempted to be overwhelmed as we consider our lives and the world around us and the work that we're called to do, we can be reminded that just as he did for Noah, that God has made every provision necessary so that we, as his people, can do the work of the covenant. God gives all the practical provision that we need. However, as I alluded to earlier, and this is connected, by the way, of Israel's failure to do this and to bring curse on themselves and on the nations instead of blessing. If we're going to do the work of the covenant, we're going to need more than just practical provision, more than just the nuts and bolts supplies that enable covenant work. I want you just to imagine for a minute Noah standing there, looking at all the death and destruction around him, having heard what God just said. And imagine he says something like this. Okay, God, you've given us the animals. You've given us government. I can take it from here. I got this. God would have laughed at him, right? Probably even rebuked him. Well, it seems more likely, and this is understandable, that Noah's response was one of silence, since the next words recorded are God's. Continuing on in verse 8, we find, and this is number 2 on the outline, we find the power of the covenant. And let me just give you the addition for this one. The power of the covenant is God's promise. The power of the covenant is God's promise. And since I won't revisit this, just in case I forget later, uh, the power of the covenant is God's promise. That's something Israel did have, but what did they not have that the church has? Ephesians, again, they didn't have the heart as a whole people to believe it. But nonetheless, and this is the case to Noah, this is the case to Israel, and always, and we'll see this in this text, always there's a believing remnant that does have the heart. The power of the covenant is God's promise. Starting in verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, and this is, there's like three points of emphasis on God himself as he's speaking here. As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed. And that word seed, by the way, this is the first time it's been used to describe a human descendant since it described Seth in chapter 5. And that was the first time since it described the ultimate seed in chapter 3. So Moses is building this theology of the anticipation of the Messiah. That's what's, that's what's happening here. So again, verse 9, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And you'll see again, that's repeated over and over again. The whole creation groans with hope because the whole creation receives this promise. It's not just to us, it's to every creature. Verse 11, again, this emphasis. Indeed, I establish my covenant with you. So where does this text indicate the power of the covenant is found? 
not in Noah, not in the seven people who are with Noah. It is not found in God's provisions relative to the animals. It is not even found in God's good provision of government going forward, and that's an important one to remember. The hope is not found in God's provision of government. Where is the power of the covenant found? In God himself. In his perfect, complete, and unfailing covenant faithfulness to what he has promised. This is the power of the covenant. Now the emphasis on God's decisive role continues as he establishes, starting in verse 12, a visible reminder of his covenant power. Then God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am giving to be between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I put my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. So what is this about? Why does God make a sign out of a rainbow? Well, remember that God has just waged war against his entire creation. And with that in mind, realize that every time this word bow is used in Genesis outside of this text, it refers to the weapon of the archer. Now, of course, as I said, God is talking here specifically about a rainbow. But what shape is a rainbow? It's the exact shape as the archer's weapon. And in the whole Old Testament, the archer's bow is the main weapon used to represent the aggression of war. So what is God doing here? By hanging his bow in the clouds, he is displaying his ceasefire. Never again, he says, will he wage this kind of war against his creation. He has poured out his wrath against sin in his appointed time and in his appointed way. And he commits himself to never do the same thing again. In the verses that follow, we continue to read of this sign and note the emphasis and the repetition, starting again in verse 14. And it will be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it to remember the eternal or the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Friends, God establishes his covenant. It is eternal he will do it. That is his emphasis in the text, and it's his emphasis throughout Scripture. He establishes this sign, his bow hung in the clouds, and he says he will look at the sign, and he will remember his promise. His promise is absolute. It's as unchanging as his character. He will never pour out his wrath in this way again. Now, I want you to think again about the hypothetical I suggested a moment ago. Only this time, 
Imagine that Noah, having now heard of this covenant promise of God, and having now seen the sign of God's bow in the clouds, imagine that now Noah were to say something like this. Okay, great. God has made a promise, and I believe it. He's provided the animals, and he's provided government. I have everything I need now. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm going to do the work of the covenant. Now, the difference from the earlier scenario, in case you didn't catch it, is Noah would have now taken the promise into account. Does that sound a little better? Or maybe it sounds a little familiar. As you may recall, the Apostle Paul confronts the Galatians about an error similar to the one I just hypothetically attributed to Noah. And I'm going to ask you actually to turn there. Galatians chapter 3. In the book of Galatians, Paul is confronting an error like the one I just sort of hypothetically drew for Noah. And they were telling the churches of Galatia something like this. Yes, you started with the promise of the gospel, and that's great. But from this point forward, it's all about the works of the law. You started with the promise of the gospel, but now you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and you do the work of the covenant. Well, Paul's answer in Galatians 3 is that they have it exactly wrong. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, the first three words. Oh, foolish Galatians. And Paul goes on to talk about how we don't start by faith, and then finish by works, what you heard by the hearing of the ear is what sustains you, Paul is saying. The whole Christian life, all work of the covenant is a matter of hearing with faith. Now there's one particular thing I want to specifically point out in the wording of Galatians 3 verse 1. So right there where you've turned, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The verb in the final clause there, publicly portrayed, that verb might alternatively be translated placarded. Placarded. This is a word that would have been used in the ancient world for a sign or a placard that was posted with a message. Does that sound familiar? This is something we see often in the Old Testament. Not only does God give the sign of a rainbow... He sometimes gave the sign of an altar or of a stack of stones placed strategically so that his people would remember an aspect of God's covenant faithfulness. God has a habit of giving signs of his faithfulness. And as Paul shows in Galatians 3, the ultimate sign of God's covenant faithfulness, the ultimate placard, is Christ crucified. And Paul says that the church must look and keep on looking to this sign. Now realize, by the way, that the Galatians had not seen Christ crucified with their physical eyes. And so as he exhorts them, he's exhorting them to the exact same way that we see Christ crucified. They saw him exactly the way we see him, by hearing with faith the apostolic witness to Jesus' substitutionary death. Beloved, for the power of the covenant, for the empowering of any work we would do, we must look to God's covenant sign, to Christ crucified. Now, in case these haven't occurred to you already, I want to point out specifically some striking parallels between the cross and God's bow that he hangs in the storm clouds in Genesis 9. Have you ever thought of the oddity of making a cross, which is a Roman torture device, 
the central object of our Christian faith. It's the central thing that we look at. Well, think of the similarity to a storm cloud in the context of the flood. Both represent a terrifying moment in which God's wrath against sin was poured out in unspeakable judgment against the object of his wrath. I mean, just imagine Noah and his family standing there and seeing a storm cloud right after the flood. That was the instrument used by God to pour his wrath out. So both of these, the storm cloud and the cross, speak to the fact that because his wrath was poured out in that way, this is how God uses these signs, because his wrath was poured out in that way, those who experienced that judgment will never have to go through it again. The earth will never again be destroyed by a flood. And just as importantly, if not more importantly, all who are in Christ by faith will never, ever pass under God's condemning wrath. Because he already poured it out on his son at the cross. And so, friends, as we again consider a world in which there is so much evidence of sin and its effects, as we, like Noah, look at what might seem like an insurmountable task that confronts us, even as we know our weakness in our flesh and feel it as we suffer, at the same time we can know and we must know that we have in Christ crucified the power of the covenant. All our fears and concerns and anxieties, fears that we can't do it, fears that we won't have what we need, these worldly concerns will melt away if we simply look to our Savior. We know this, don't we? It's one of the most rock-solid and clear and precious truths that we remind ourselves of often, that if God did not spare his own Son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also in him freely give us all things? God has already paid the greatest price, the necessary price. He has poured out his wrath in his appointed way at his appointed time, and he has hung up his bow. He has publicly displayed, he's placarded before our eyes Christ crucified. Friends, turn your eyes to his sign and receive the power of the covenant. As we continue in Genesis 9, the provision and the hope that we've found so far in this text are seen meeting a specific occasion on which Noah had need of them. Knowing that the work of the covenant continues with new provision and that God himself is guaranteeing it with renewed and these absolutely steadfast promises that are rooted in his character. This might have left Noah and his family with maybe an unrealistic sense of optimism. Things had been difficult their whole lives. And as we've read, as we've seen in Genesis so far, ever since the fall, the wicked had been a constant source of affliction, beginning with Cain's murder of Abel. Perhaps Noah might have thought it wouldn't be like that anymore. But he would have been wrong if that's what he thought. And we see this as we come to covenant feature number three, the setting, 
of the covenant. The setting of the covenant. And here the addition is, the setting of the covenant is one of enmity. The setting of the covenant is one of enmity. Starting with verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was scattered abroad. And so here, as we begin to learn the origins of the nations, it's going to serve us to think again about Israel as the original readers of Genesis. Israel would have received the book of Genesis on the plains of Moab as they waited for God to lead them in the conquest of Canaan. And so God here uses the story of Ham, and we see clearly, of course, in the text here, he is Canaan's ancestor. He uses the story of Ham to help Israel understand the setting for the covenant work to which they were being called. We see this first in the fact that Ham is singled out in verse 18 as the father of Canaan. In the verses that follow, we find a clear distinction between Noah's sons and between their descendants. Now, I'm going to read a big chunk all at once here, verses 20 to 27, because I want us to get a sense of the big picture. And I'll just tell you ahead of time that the major emphasis here is on the contrast between Ham, who greatly dishonors his father, and Shem and Japheth, who greatly honor their father Noah. So try to pay attention to that contrast as I read, starting in verse 20. Then Noah began to be a man of the land and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Then Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took the garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Then Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan. A slave of slaves he shall be to his brothers. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be their slave. Now what we are seeing in these verses is, again, this is the big picture. We're seeing the repetition of a pattern that was established in Genesis, starting in Genesis 3. First, there's the sin of a father, Noah's drunkenness and nakedness. But like with Adam, who together with Eve had his sin covered in Genesis 3, Noah, we've already seen in previous chapters, and this was an emphasis in chapters 6 and 7, Noah is counted righteous. Noah is seen by God as blameless, obedient to God's word. However, in keeping with the promise of Genesis 3.15, there is ongoing war, ongoing enmity between the seed of the woman, who we saw in Genesis 5 already is Noah at this point, and the seed of the serpent. And as with the contrast between Cain and Abel in chapter 4, the contrast here between Ham on the one hand and Shem and Japheth on the other is just as clear. The way Moses records this scene speaks clearly to themes of submission versus usurpation and honor 
versus dishonor. Now, to understand this, we need to recall again that there are only eight people left on the earth. There's Noah and his three sons and each of their wives. And remember that all these would have come of age watching the dynamics of power and oppression play out in the pre-flood world. A primary emphasis in the early chapters of Genesis is that those who took power and a prominent position for themselves were able to lord it over others and oppress them. Now, with that in mind, think about what we see in the actions of Noah's sons. What we see for sure is that what Ham did was dishonoring to his father. But in its context, what we are seeing is something more than just that. If Ham could usurp Noah, who as the only living father would have been the man with the most authority in the world, and if he could get his brothers to follow him, then who would suddenly have the most authority in the world? Ham would. We can take it that this was his angle. Ham was making something of a power play. In a, in a way, much like Cain, who begrudged Abel's position as acceptable to the Lord and took it into his own hands to eliminate him by murdering him. Ham was going to take this opportunity afforded by Noah's lapse in judgment to take matters into his own hands and to position himself over his father and over his brothers, effectively over everyone on earth. However, and this is so very important, his brothers did not join him in dishonoring and usurping their father. The text is at pains to describe repetitively the extent to which Ham, Shem and Japheth worked to honor their father Noah, walking backward, placing the cloak on their shoulders and turning their faces backwards so that they would not dishonor their father. As a result of this effort, this, this expressed effort to honor their father, we read of the blessing of Shem and Japheth. Japheth would be fruitful and Ham would end up subjugated to Japheth. And even more honor goes to Ham, um, goes to Shem. As it says that Yahweh himself, and that might be unclear in the text, it says, he will dwell in the tents of Shem. The, the grammatical antecedent there, the most recent subject of a verb is the Lord. And so it is Yahweh who will dwell in the tent of Shem. Yahweh himself will dwell in the tents of Shem. And Israel, we're going to see this next week, and, and you can pray for me. We're going to do the table of nations <laughs> in one sermon next week. Uh, so we'll see that Shem is uh, the um, ancestor of Israel. Israel is descended from Shem. And so this blessing that Yahweh will dwell in the tent of Shem was being fulfilled as God dwelt with Israel as they received the book of Genesis. He was dwelling with them in the tabernacle during the days of the Exodus. And that's in keeping with what I mentioned, that part of Moses' purpose here is to frame Israel's reality for them as they anticipate the invasion of Canaan. So Israel is the recipient of the blessing of Shem, and, and contrary-wise, on the other hand, Canaan is the recipient of the curse of Ham. A brief look at descriptions of Canaanite practices found later in Scripture helps us to see that the identification in Genesis 9 between Ham and Canaan, such that Canaan could receive Ham's curse, is not merely a matter of God's sovereign choice. It is that, but that's not all it is. What we find is that Canaan, like Ham, 
becomes known for engaging in immorality that is worthy of curse. We read in Leviticus 18, verse 3, God's instruction that Israel specifically must not do according to what is done in the land of Canaan. From the list of prohibited activities, it is apparent that the sins of Canaan were like the sins of their father Ham, only worse. Things like making worship sacrifices to goat demons in Leviticus 17. And then all of these are from Leviticus 18. Committing sexual immorality with family members and other forms of immorality like homosexuality and bestiality. And then even, and this was just a huge abomination to God, even child sacrifice to, to Molech was what the Canaanites engaged in. And so by this time, by the time of the Exodus, unlike in the day of Abraham, when God says, and I think this is uh, Exodus 18, God says there that it wasn't time yet for the conquest of Canaan. By the time of the Exodus, the Canaanites had filled up the full measure of their iniquities. And it was time for their curse from here in Genesis 9 to be enforced. So this is how we must understand, and you see the complexity of the implications, but this is how we must understand the implications of these verses. And it's, it's, it's not just complex, it's actually simple. As from the very beginning in the garden, there are only two ways. There's the way of blessing, and there's the way of curse. The flood has not changed things in this respect. This continues post-flood to be the setting of the covenant. There is still enmity, and that was what was promised in Genesis 3. There is still enmity, there is still of opposition and affliction and difficulty. And as with the work of the covenant and the power of the covenant, so there is continuity for us in the setting of the covenant. Jesus said these words in Matthew 10, starting in verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And hear this, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This is the setting of the covenant, not just for Noah, and not just for Israel, but for us. We should acknowledge and remember that this is perhaps, and probably should be, the most painful suffering of all that we have brothers and sisters in the flesh who oppose God and therefore who oppose us. This was the case for Noah, who was opposed by his own son, and for Shem and Japheth, opposed by their brother. And think of this. I mean, you're probably familiar with Romans 9. What does Paul say about the Jews? He says, If it were possible, I would be cut off in a curse for the sake of my brothers Israel according to the flesh. It grieves him, and it should grieve us that this is the case. And beloved, this is, it is on the difficulties, on the list of difficulties for many and probably all of us, that we have people close to us, our neighbors, our co-workers, even our immediate family members, who are opposed to the Lord and therefore are opposed to us as our enemies, as concerns the gospel. For us, as for Noah, this is the setting of the covenant. Verses 28 and 29 serve as a fitting conclusion to this section of text. 
It says, And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. As you may recall from chapter 5, those last words were a constant refrain in the record of the line of Seth. And he died, and he died, and he died over and over and over again in Genesis 5. And here, as in chapter 5, those words in the Hebrew, just one compound word, accounts for half the logical weight of verse 29 according to the markings of the original text. What that means is that the emphasis here is again death. Noah, whose name means rest, the one in whom the hope of recreation was vested, he died. This, again, is the context of the covenant in which we do our work. It is a context of difficulty and opposition and even death. And so it is a a context in which we are right to groan. And that kind of brings us full circle, does it not? Having seen that our covenant work is ongoing, that provision is made, and that we can be full of hope in God's promise, we see also acknowledgement of the fact that we are called to this work in a setting that is one of pain. It is not what it was originally supposed to be. And so, again, it is a setting in which we groan. What does post-flood faithfulness look like? What shall we do when we see pain and difficulty? What shall we do when we, like Noah, realize that we have worked and worked and worked to pursue God's will, only to see that opposition and relational difficulty and suffering and even death are still our day-to-day reality? How can we be helped by these features of God's eternal covenant to know what post-flood faithfulness must look like for us? Well, I think maybe it'll help to think of applying these in reverse order. First, take a clear-eyed, realistic view of the setting in which you must be faithful. If God has provided reminders in your life, and he surely has, that this world and this life are not what they were originally supposed to be? Rejoice. Rejoice that he has explained this reality, both here in this text and throughout the Bible. Your difficulties, your circumstances do not surprise God. In fact, he has planned them for your good. As the psalmist says, in faithfulness he has afflicted you. It is good for you that you are afflicted, that you might learn God's statutes. Well, how does that work? Take a cue from Noah in this text. When he awoke and knew what his son had done to him, Noah looked at the promise. How is it possible that Yahweh would dwell in the tents of Shem? How is it possible that Japheth would, with Shem, receive a blessing? You need to know, even as Noah knew, that this is possible only because of God's unshakable promise. God has poured out his wrath and judgment, and he promises to never do so again in the same way. He will never destroy the earth in a flood, and all those who are in Christ will never know the curse and destruction of the cross. Friends, all our hope, all your hope, and all my hope, if we have any hope, 
is in Yahweh's sign. Christ was placarded before our eyes as crucified. Look to him and receive the power of the covenant. And friend, if that is new to you this morning, it is available to you here and now, right this minute. There are only two ways. There is the way of death and curse. That is your own way. There is your way, your plans, what you can get and reason and determine for yourself. And you know this to some extent from your own experience, but I want to say it to you right now on the authority of God's word that going your own way will not lead you to life. It will not lead you to contentment or a sense of purpose or joy or relief. It will only lead you to destruction. And so it is your immediate duty and it will become your joy to repent, to turn to turn and start going in the opposite direction. Stop going your way and go the blessing, go the way of the blessing of life instead. Look away from yourself, look away from the world and what you might get from it, and look to Christ. Repent and believe the power of the covenant. And brothers and sisters, as we receive the power of the covenant, What a glory it is for us, seeing God's abundant provision to take up and do the work of the covenant. And remember, again, from Galatians and from this text, that the way we start is the way we finish, with God's power. It is a simple calling. God has taken the responsibility for the ultimate outcome, and he has made every provision we need. What is there for you to do? What does your next faithful step look like? It might look like overcoming fear of man to share the gospel with a coworker. It might look like availing yourself of one of the ten copies of the Bible that is sitting on your shelf and committing to a consistent quiet time this week. It might look like overcoming your selfishness to do the hard work of parenting, discipline, training in the way of the Lord. It might look like confronting a close friend or family member who is in sin, even if you are afraid you might lose that relationship. Beloved, the setting we are in is a simple one. There is the way of curse and death, and there is the way of blessing and life. Look to Christ. All Again, all we have is Christ. Look to Christ and choose life, and rejoice, knowing the satisfaction of drawing near to God that according to the promise of his eternal covenant, he will do everything he has promised. Please pray with me. Father, this is our only hope. And Lord, we are a people in need of hope. As your people always have been, Father, would you smile on us and minister to us Father, as we, as we sing this hymn, as we sing the words, would you help us to do this? Would you help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face? Father, that the concerns, those thoughts that we might not be able to do it, that we might not have what we need, Father, that those concerns would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.